when I got down there, it was quite evident that he was having a full-blown tonic-clonic seizure. Part of me just wanted to sort of go into the plane and just throw my hands up and go, he's alive. Two four two, have you responded to probe one? We're having that lady unconscious. Topic approach one three two zero. Hi, I'm Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and this is a podcast series about mateship, about life in the bush, and about the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in servicing rural communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. Something caught my eye and I looked up and I could see so much of his head above the seat just shaking in what appeared to be a um, a seizure-like activity. It's incredibly important that everyone has basic first aid and CPR training, as you never know when your help might be required. Do you know what to do if a person near you has a heart attack and stops breathing? What was meant to be just another flight for fly-in, fly-out worker Patrick Larkins turned into a near brush with death as passengers had to keep his heart beating. One of those passengers was Ben Mayer, a flight nurse with the Royal Flying Doctor Service in Western Australia. He was off duty and he observed something odd with Patrick as he entered the plane. He's here to explain what happened that day. G'day, Ben. How are you? I'm good. Um, Before we dive into that commercial flight to Port Hedland, have you been with the RFDS for very long? I'm coming up to two and a half years now, but um, at the time uh, that that event occurred, I'd only been with them for a couple of months. Gotcha. And what had you been doing before you came to work for the RFDS? Uh, I was a registered nurse uh, at Royal Perth in the emergency department there. And I was uh, finishing up my midwifery course at uh, St John of God, Mount Lawley. What made you decide to be a flight nurse with the RFDS? I had a work colleague who I work, um, at Royal Perth who I worked with and uh, one day she said that she was going out to have a look at the base at Jandicott and asked if I was interested. And at that time, I sort of had no idea what was the role of a flight nurse, that there was such a, um, you know, a role for someone um, and just had not, no idea about it. So um, the idea of flying um, from childhood uh, aviation was always something of an interest. I um, had an interest in, in flying and wanting to become a pilot, but due to um, other reasons that didn't eventuate and so uh, eventually went down the health care um, route and then um, working in ED uh, we went out to this um, airport and uh, the base out there and the head of nursing out at RFDS showed us around and gave us a bit of an insight as to what the role is the outback you know the, the different jobs and challenges that they face and it just seemed like something interesting to do and the next step to um, further my career as a, in healthcare. Oh, that's fabulous. So was it a, um, a big jump or a challenge to go from working in a major metro tertiary hospital to suddenly finding yourself within the small confines of a, of a plane? Absolutely. Um, I think uh, the, the role of a flight nurse um, 
or to become a flight nurse, um, there's a numerous years of experience that that are required in particular areas um, of a hospital or or healthcare, um, being that of critical care, um, because very much so you go from a department where you, such as an emergency department or intensive care unit where you've got help on hand, um, if something goes wrong in a department or you need help, there's a button there that you can push to, to seek help that, you know, notifies the whole department that, that help's required um, to working in essentially a tin can with possibly just yourself as a flight nurse only flight or um, with a, a, a doctor who's flying with you and um, having to uh, manage challenging situations, uh, you know, just with yourself and a doctor, um, you know, is a huge difference from, from working in a hospital to uh, to working in, in, a, in an aeroplane up at 20,000, 24,000 feet. Do you find it fulfilling? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I've, uh, I mean, prior to working with RFDS, I um, had been nursing for about eight years. Um, I'd done 18 months then of my midwifery training and I felt that all of that sort of, you know, has been done for a reason. I've sort of gotten to where I now feel like I'm, I'm really happy in what I do. And, uh, you know, I, I'm in a job and an occupation that really, you know, fills that basket for me. Well, that's fabulous. That's just fabulous. All right. So let's go back to that day when you were boarding a commercial flight to Port Hedland and you weren't on duty. You you were just going from Perth up to up to work, I presume. Is that right? That's it, yeah. So at that time, um, my family, um, wife and two kids were living in Perth and I was living um, up in Port Hedland um, and I was down in Perth visiting them on my time off um, and I was... Uh, flying back to Port Hedland for a night shift that night. That's when it all sort of happened. So you got on the plane and Patrick Larkins had already boarded and was seated. So did you know, is that right? Did you notice anything or did you see him come in? Yeah, so he was the last one to board. Um, So as it turned out, he was um, late off a connecting flight from Sydney, um, which he said that... uh, caused him some of the the stress and anxiety that that's why he looked the way that he did. What did you notice about him? I don't know. He looked panicked. He looked um, sweaty. Um, He was somewhat overweight. So, um, and he just looked a bit off colour. But, I mean, you know, to anyone, you know, he looked like he'd just been exercising or something. But I guess, you know, in the back of your mind when you you have worked in emergency departments and that sort of stuff and you see all sorts of things come through or presentations come through the door, you know, in the back of your mind there is something that's like "Hmm, maybe he is a bit unwell or maybe it's just, you know, the stress of missing his flight that he's, uh, you know, looking the way that he is. Yeah. So what happened then? Yeah, so... I was seated down, I was just listening to some music, um, saw, uh, as it turns out, Patrick was loading his bag into the overhead cabin and um, the plane that we're in, the Fokker 100, so it's a two-seater on the left and then three seats on the right, 
and he was on the window seat <laughs> on the right we, and there was two other passengers who had already um, sat down uh, before him. Um, he was about eight or ten rows in front of me and um, once he'd boarded the cabin crew were getting ready to close up doors and, and go through all the safety brief. And um, as he sat down, um, didn't sort of notice anything of it. And then the lady, I think it was, who was sitting next to him just looked over and something caught my eye and I looked up and I could see his, like, you know, so much of his head above the seat just shaking in what appeared to be a, um, a seizure-like activity. So when I saw that, both of the passengers next to him, they both got up out of their seats and I've um, taken off the headphones, put the phone away and just gone straight down to to see what was happening because, I mean, it happened in a split second. I didn't even really think about it. I just sort of got up, but nobody else at the time, it, it seemed, um, was getting up to do anything. So... So I, I got up and when I got down there, it was quite evident that he was having a, a full-blown tonic-clonic seizure. And um, so I just leant over from behind his seat and just provided a bit of airway support um, until that that resolved and laid him down on his side and just tried to, to give him a bit of reassurance and talk to him and say, you know, you're okay, mate. You just you're just having a seizure. You know, you're just coming through with it. And then once he was on his side, he he wasn't making any movements. He wasn't chest wasn't moving. He was showing no signs of life. And he his cut the color in his face was rapidly changing. And um, and so straight away I knew that something wasn't right. His, his um, heart's most likely stopped or it's fibrillating or, or doing something that it shouldn't normally be doing. So um, with the assistance of somebody else, as I've asked for, a, we've um, rolled him onto his back and um, started chest compressions. Could I just clarify, Ben, was he still on the seats? Like there's not a lot of space in a plane to do CPR. No, there was And they, these things are tiny. So um, at the time, someone did suggest to put him down in the aisle. But um, when once I'd, late, like, once I'd seen the size of him and... Uh, how much space there is between the aisle and like the, the left row and the right row of seats, um, especially doing CPR on someone like that, it just wasn't practical to be doing it on the floor. So we left him on the seats. We put all the armrests up and um, as it turned out, it was much better. I mean, for, for us as, uh, and everyone else that was involved in um, the resuscitation of Patrick to, um, to be standing and doing CPR instead of being bent over and possibly injuring ourselves in, in such an area. What was everybody else doing? Was was the rest of the plane and the passengers going into a bit of a panic or or were you not aware of what was going on because you were just, you know, totally focused on Patrick? Um, no, there was certainly um, a couple of other people came down to help. Um, there was another lady there who said that she had some nursing experience. There was a person um, who was uh, in the row behind him who leant over the chairs to try and help and then another um, 
person from up in Port Hedland. I think he was a volunteer firefighter up there. He he's offered to help as well. So, but the thing with a resuscitation like that, I've I've not been involved in anything like that in the community. I found that very quickly, with no one sort of taking control of what was happening there, somebody had to, and I guess that was me. And um, an example of having to do that was um, with the person who was trying to help leaning over the seats, and we just had to say, "No, sorry, like if if we're doing this, we're doing it properly. You need to you need to walk around me, and you're gonna you're gonna come in on my account." Um, and that's when we. Uh, would sort of rotate between CPR people and uh, and whatnot from there. So once um, there was a few of us doing CPR, the air um, crew people brought down some equipment. Once again, once the firefighters as well turned up, um, so they had a an oxygen um, tank with them, and they had uh, a bag valve mask with them, and a <clears throat> a little airway to pop in so once I arrived I um, took myself away from from doing CPR and I bagged him with the bag valve mask and I just um, then instructed and counted people in and out of, of doing CPR. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-Max Utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes, minus the wings, and the Isuzu D-MAX and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state, and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. did um, that CPR continue while he was lying there on the on the seats of the plane? Um, I'm not sure of the exact times but I think it was, it, it was probably about five minutes before the firefighters arrived with their um, defibrillator um, and then probably 15 maybe 20 minutes before St John ambulance arrived. Wow. And yeah. and did they have to use the defibrillator right there as well or was it just the CPR? No, so he was shocked four times. So I'm not sure what happened with the uh, defibrillator the first time, but people were still doing CPR and I still had my hands on him trying to bag him and uh, the defibrillator um, delivered a shock, <laughs> which kind of... Uh, gave us all a bit of a fright because there's supposed to be an automated device that instructs you on what to do and when to have your hands on and, and off and um, for it to have just delivered a shock there and then it sort of all gave us a bit of a fright. But nevertheless, we, we continued. None of us were affected by it. And um, from the, the little digital um, monitor that was on the screen, it was quite clear to see that his um, heart was in a ventricular fibrillation of 
of sorts, yeah. Wow. So 15 minutes later, the ambulance arrives. What what happens at that point? Yeah, so the St John's crew arrived. They came in, sort of assessed the situation, what they're going to need to to bring, how they're going to get him off, I guess. And um, so they, they came in with a big canvas um, sheet that they use. And um, I guess at some point they... The only way for them to be able to get access to him was to get him off the air, aircraft just because getting any sort of IV access or any proper care of him um, needed to be off the aircraft. So they've decided to um, stop all CPR and, and everything and, and get the mat under him and quickly get him off the, the aircraft. And um, so... On their direction, their count, we sat him up, got the canvas mat underneath him and there was about eight of us trying to hold the sides of this canvas mat and all of us walked between the aisle with this gentleman, um, Patrick, above all of the seats until we got to the the uh, exit of the aircraft. And um, as uh, as we because it was a stair mill up to the um, to the aircraft, it wasn't one of the air terminals. We got him outside, and they got um, a big uh, lifting hoist thing outside there. The Qantas crew did, and at that time, me Patrick started to move and to blink, and to he was spitting out the um, airway tube that we'd popped in his mouth and uh it was just bizarre it was like how you know he just sort of suddenly had signs of life so that happened while you were taking him out of the plane so cpr had stopped he had was unresponsive well yeah yeah so he'd stopped and then um once we once we'd lowered him down on, onto the outside of the aircraft, the stair, stairway there, he'd um, he then yeah sped out the airway and and started to to move around and just sort of show the, show signs of life. Wow, wow! So yeah. what what happened at that point? So meanwhile, all the passengers who were thinking they were going to Port Hedland have been sitting on a plane watching all of this for twenty minutes, and yeah, um, yeah, firefighters, ambulance, the whole thing. What happens at that point with Patrick? So we're at the top of the stair mill, and we had to work out how we we're going to get him down um, to ground level, I guess, because um, this big um, jack that they had. Uh, didn't go down far enough so eventually we decided that we um got a spinal board that they had and um sort of used that as a slide and we slid him down from there to the ambulance stretcher and once he was on the ambulance stretcher then they loaded him into the back of uh, their ambulance and put all the proper monitoring on him put some oxygen on him and and checked all his vitals and yeah they um I think they spent about 10, 10, 15 minutes with him on the ground and then took him into Royal Perth. Wow. And so you then, with adrenaline on absolute high, go back into the plane and was what was the response of all the passengers? Yes. Uh, I, it was it was a bit strange, actually. So we, we went back onto the plane and I don't know why, but I just felt... Um, not embarrassed by it, but just like, you know, something huge has happened here. And I felt weird about wanting to make eye contact with people. 
in particular. A bit self-conscious. And so I just sort of had my head down. Yeah, just self-conscious about it. I don't know why, but... It's because you're a hero. That's like, why. Part of me, part, well, part <laughs> of me just wanted to sort of go into the plane and just throw my hands up and go, he's alive. But, you know, and, and read the, the applause and everything. But I don't know. I just, for some reason, I just sort of, you know, had my head down and just... Um, grab my bag because the air crew said just go grab your bags and, and get off we're gonna have to change aircraft and and whatnot so we all um well th- those who were involved in the, in the resuscitation there was about four of us um in the end we all got our bags and and went off and waited inside the terminal and at that point um after sitting for a few minutes the uh cabin crew and the Pilots, I don't know why they came to me, but they came to me and said, oh, were you involved in the resuscitation of that guy? And I said, yeah, that was me. And and just, yeah, they gave me a handshake and said, thank you very much. And, and then, yeah, a few of the other passengers came and asked a few questions about what happened and how was he and how's he going and all that sort of thing. So after about an hour in the terminal, I... um contacted Royal Perth because being my old stomping ground, I was able to talk to um, the ED there and ask how he was and, and how he was doing. And, yeah, so they um, they gave me a bit of an update about him and uh, and then before boarding the next flight to actually get up to Port Hedland, um, you know, was able to let everyone know that he's alive and doing well under the circumstances. (laughs) What an amazing story. Now, I understand that a little while later you actually got to meet him face-to-face where he came to meet you and say thank you and I saw a video where he was just all tearing up and very emotional man. Yeah. What did he say? Well, that night, um, so once I actually got back to Port Hedland, um, I was tasked to fly about an hour later. So um, I ended up doing a um, like a 13 hour shift um, which we had to we got stuck down in Perth and um, so I slept that day um, in the hotel that we get put up in and um, because it was close to Royal Perth I took the time um, to go and see him and just see how he was doing in the critical care unit there and um, I mean at the time he had no recollection of what had happened but um the uh I got to go and see him like the following day and um he was just a bit confused about it all, what had all happened, but um yeah, sure enough, uh must have been a few weeks um after the ordeal, he was back in um Port Hedland and we caught up with him and his daughter, I think it was, um, for a coffee and a chat at the dome um coffee shop there in Port Hedland and he just, yeah, really expressed his gratitude towards it all and how thankful he was and how much of a a kick in the butt it was to sort of change and go about a bit of a lifestyle change for him because he said that he, like, he knew he wasn't the healthiest of blokes but he hadn't been to a doctor recently and uh, his diet wasn't great and he he knew in the back of his mind that he wasn't doing the right thing, but, you know, sometimes he's, as he said, he, he needs a bit of a scare to, um, to get himself back into gear. And I mean, to his credit, 
when we did catch up, he'd, he'd lost a number of kilos. He's on, um, you know, some appropriate medication and, and doing well for himself. That's fabulous. Such a wonderful story. Mm. I, uh, I guess I wanted to use this story as to highlight the importance of first responders and highlight how critical it is that people no matter where they live, whether it's in metro areas or out in the bush, that people have basic first aid training and know how to do CPR um, because it is so critical. You never know when you're going to need it. And I love the fact that there was four people there on that plane, you included, that jumped up and, and got to action and knew what to do. And it makes such a huge difference. Do you have any words of encouragement for a person that maybe doesn't have first aid training or CPR training and is a bit nervous about maybe doing something like that, what would be your words of encouragement for somebody? I think just, you know, just do it. Like, um, you never know when something like this is is going to occur and you may go through all the training and you may never need it. And I guess that's probably the best case scenario. But at the same time, if you do have that knowledge and you do have that training, sometimes instincts instincts just kick in and it just it just all happens. And yeah, I guess my advice to, to those who, who are unsure is, is take the opportunity. Um, most workplaces offer some sort of um, course that you can attend and uh, you just never know when you might need it. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ben, for talking to us today. I'm really glad we have you on our team. No worries. Thank you. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone who you think will love it too. Thank you for listening to The Flying Doctor podcast. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.